We are up to chapter four, Mishnah number three. This is the second consecutive Mishnah that's authored by Ben Azai. We'll read it and then we'll dig into it. Hu haya Omer, he would say, adam. Don't be scornful of any person. Va'alti mafled l'chol davar, and do not be dismissive of anything. She'en adam she'en lo for you don't have any person who does not have his hour, and you do not have anything that does not have its place. This is a little bit of a cryptic Mishnah, we're told by Benazai, to not be dismissive, to not disdain any person, to not ignore, to not appreciate the validity of anything. Everything has value, every person has value. Why? Because every person has his hour, and everything has its place. Even things that you may think really have no place, yes, you, you may be correct for the most part, but everything has its place. There's the, the reason, there's a reason why the Almighty placed everything on this, on this earth, and therefore you cannot reject, you cannot denigrate anything. Everything has its time and place, and every person has his value, has his hour. And this is like a very broad statement. And the commentaries, they go in a lot of different directions in trying to unpack the lesson of Ben-Azai. So, for example, Rashi, he has a, a very, um, I would say, mainstream approach. He tells us that we shouldn't embarrass any person because every person, even someone that doesn't seem to have any power, doesn't seem to have any value, doesn't seem to be contributing to society, every person has something about them they could teach you, has something about them or some time where they could be of value or conversely has a time when they could be given power over you. And therefore, you may see someone and say, well, well, this person doesn't really have any value. I don't need to regard them highly. But of course, we're trained to honor every person, to try to see the value of every person. And also, we're warned over here Every person has their time or could potentially have their time where they're given power over you. And you don't want someone to have any beef against you because there's going to come a time in history where you'll need them or you'll be subject to them and therefore make sure that you're good with every person. There's a famous business saying, don't kick any person on your way up because you may meet them on your way down. Yes, you may be ascendant. Yes, you may at this time, in this hour, be above them. But if you lord over them, it may come back to bite you sometime down the line. In addition, we're also told that everything, even non-animate things, everything or non-persons, everything has a value and it has its time, its place. There's going to be some time in history when you need it. And there's a famous uh, episode that the Midrash brings about King David related to this idea. King David didn't like spiders. And he asked God, why did you make spiders? Who needs spiders? And the Midrash goes on to say how when when David was fleeing from Saul, he was hiding once in, in a cave and a spider came and made a web over the entrance of the cave, a very quick web. And then when Saul and his henchmen we're looking for David. They see this cave and it's covered with the spider's web. And they say, oh, there's no way David could be in there. 
because after all, he would have to break through this this web, and therefore they ignored that cave. And that was the lesson to David. Of course, the lesson to us as well. Everything has its time, has its place. It'll have its its time in 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 history, and its its place in the world where it can be of great use. Every person, in addition, we're told, every person that exists, it's evidence of God desiring that person to exist. And therefore, if you're denigrating that, it's in effect a lack of faith. Because if you don't see value in some in some person, God does see value in that person. By dint of the fact that the person exists, there's no greater evidence for that person having value because God allows and assures that that person is going to continually exist. Similarly, everything that exists is testament to God desiring the thing to exist. And therefore, if you denigrate it, if you dismiss it, if you don't value it, in effect, you're contesting God's will in having that thing exist. It's another idea that we see in the commentaries here. We have our kind of hierarchy of people. Most people, I would say, they probably inflate their own value, and maybe they deflate the values of the people, the value of the people around them. But society as well, you know, some people are, are really impressive. They've achieved a lot. Their, you know, their life and their their deeds and their stature is admirable, is noteworthy, and they're viewed very highly in the total pole of this this hierarchy of who's who's valuable. And then you have other people that maybe have accomplished less. Their persona, their their life is is less impressive, and they're valued less. That's that's common in our society. But of course, we don't know everything about people. We don't know what God outlined for them as their mission. We don't know what challenges they had. We cannot weigh their output relative to what they were able to achieve to their potential. And therefore, we can't truly give a correct valuation. So, for example, the Talmud tells us, suppose there's someone, and we'll give some crude numbers here. Suppose there was someone who could have achieved 100 units of success. And you know what? They did achieve 100 units of success. Well, they're a great success. They maximized their potential. They maximized the opportunity. They did exactly what God wanted them to do. Compare that to someone who's their neighbor who was able to achieve not 100 units of success, but 100,000 units of success. They were given a much greater soul. They were given a much grander intellect. They were given greater gifts and greater opportunities to achieve a thousandfold what their neighbor achieved. And you know what? They achieved a lot. They did 10,000 units of achievement. And society looks up to them. Look what this person achieved. And if you compare this person to their neighbor, it's, there's no comparison. You know, there's a hundred times greater what neighbor B achieved versus neighbor A. But how does God view these two people? One of them in our eyes is an unmitigated success. 10,000 units of, of, of achievement. Unbelievable what, what, what accomplishments this person has. The neighbor, kind of pitiful. A hundred units? It's, it's a little, almost a joke. Yet in God's eyes, the person who maximized what 
they were given the potential, the opportunities that God gave them, that's a total righteous person. And the person who totally failed, they should have done 10 times more than they achieved. It's an absolute miserable failure. And yet, in our eyes, we have the exact opposite verdict on these two neighbors. The Ramam tells us, every single human, not every Jew, every single human can be as great as Moses. But wait a minute. The Torah says not like that. The Torah says that there's never going to be a prophet like Moses. What's the Ramam not know that verse in the Torah? The Ramam is telling us is that Moses, he was given the opportunity to achieve not maybe a hundred thousand units of, of success of greatness, a hundred million, whatever it was. And he, he accomplished everything that he was set out to accomplish. A total success. Every one of us, we have much smaller spectra of opportunity to achieve. But if we, each one of us, every human, if we achieve the maximum that we can achieve, then we're as great a success as Moses. We're as righteous as Moses. Because there's no way I could actually be in absolute terms as great as Moses. I'll never be a prophet. Because the Torah says I'll never be a prophet as great as Moses. And we know through history, I'm not going to be a prophet at all. In fact, I even work for a non-profit organization. But I too... And every one of us, we were all given tools and abilities to achieve whatever it is we can achieve. And if we achieve whatever it is that the Almighty outlined for us, and we do it as best as we could possibly do, we're as great as Moses. That's the insight the Ram tells us. What happens when I judge my neighbor? I say, this guy, this person, they don't really have much value. This guy, look how pitiful, look how, look how shameful. What actually may happen in God's eyes, in the real world, when our souls are finally freed from the clutches of our body, it may turn out that the exact opposite verdict will be rendered. My neighbor will be held in the greatest, highest regard, and I'm going to be viewed as a terrible failure because relative to what I could have accomplished and relative to what he could have accomplished, he's a tremendous success and I am a total failure. The Talmud tells us the first recorded instance of a near-death experience, it tells us that one of the great sages died and was revived. And after they were revived, they asked, of course, they debriefed them, what did you see? When you were dead, what did you see? So now we know today that there's been thousands of documented cases of people having near-death experiences and, and, and witnessing things from the other spheres and coming back to give us an account of that. And also seeing things that are, you know, outside of the vantage point of, of their body. And the Talmud tells us that one of the sages, they died and they came back to tell us what they saw. And their message is as follows. What did you see? I saw the lofty ones are lowly and the lowly ones are lofty. I saw an, op- an upside down world. The world's inverted. That's what the Talmud says. And the explanation, one of the explanations that are given is that th- this is the point. In our world, we judge based on absolutes. In the real world, everything is judged relative to what they could have accomplished. Every person is judged relatively what they could accomplish. In this world, someone is lowly or lofty based upon their absolute output. If you do 100, I do 
10,000, well, who's lofty and who's lowly? Whereas in the spiritual world, it's not – you're not judged based on your absolute output. You're judged based upon what you could have done relative to your abilities. And therefore, the lowly ones that are here in that world are lofty. The lofty ones that are here in that world are lowly. So an upside-down world. That's what he comes back to, to, to share to share with, with us after his near-death experience. That's another point here in the Mishnah, a deep point that Benazai is – Revealing to us that we have a tendency to judge other people. And of course, we've seen previously in Perkavos that we shouldn't judge other people. But one of the ways that we judge them is we're dismissive of them. We, we denigrate them. We're scornful towards them. They don't have so much value in our eyes. And here we see another, another idea as to why that's perilous and why that could be totally mistaken because who knows who's really greater? You may think justifiably in your eyes. You're a greater person. That person, what a joke. What an embarrassment. Look at them. They're a criminal. They're unsophisticated. They don't study. They're, they, they don't speak properly. They're not, they're not advanced. They don't think properly. Whatever it is, there are sufficient reasons in your eyes to denigrate them, to view them lowly. And you know what? You may be right by the lenses of this world. Comes along Benazai and he tells us we may be making a grave error because we have no idea how God judges them. And it's quite possible that the person that you view as being very lowly is actually loftier than you in God's eyes. I want to suggest another explanation to this Mishnah based upon the exact wording of the Mishnah. So if you'll notice... The Mishnah uses the words, a person, there's no person that does not have his hour. It doesn't say his time. It says kind of his hour. I want to maybe suggest an idea based upon a a motif that appears several places in the Talmud about everyone having an auspicious hour to turn their life around. We might have mentioned this in the past. It's worth revisiting frequently. We're told that our objective as humans in this world is to ensure that we leave this world with an entrance ticket to Olamaba, to the next world. This world is like a corridor. It's one of the missions we'll see later on in this chapter. It's a corridor. It's a pathway to try to get to the next world. This is all like a, a long hallway, a corridor, a pathway to try to arrive at the palace gates armed with the tools of admins. And of course, the mitzvot, the Torah, all that is there to aid us, to make us a better candidate for the next world. That's one of the main foundational ideas of Torah. Typically, to do that, to actually achieve your mission, your mandate, to be armed with the tools to get to Olam Abba, that's typically the result of a lifetime's work. If you work for your whole life in the corridor, constantly refining, perfecting yourself to make yourself a better and better candidate to get to Omaba, when you arrive at those doors, you'll be allowed in. Otherwise, you'll have to be sent back to the beginning of the line. You have to go through some cleaning process. It's not going to be pleasant. And we talked about that in the podcast that we did about Jonah. However, the Talmud in three places tells us 
that there is a shortcut to leapfrog all the work to cut the line, to have a loophole of all loopholes, to be able to achieve a lifetime's work compressed into one hour. It gives us three stories to this effect. The first story is about a gentleman. His name is Ketia Bar Shalom. Who was this Ketia Bar Shalom? He was an advisor, non-Jewish advisor, to one of the Caesars. The Talmud tells us that this particular Caesar, he really wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Not surprisingly, we've seen many autocrats throughout history have the similar sentiments. And he wanted to, he, he, he gathered his, his cabinet, he gathered, gathered his A-team, he said, okay, I want to destroy the Jewish people. He actually compared the Jewish people to like a thorn that's in your foot. It's like, oh, I'm suffering so much with them, I can't deal with them. Let's just cut it off, let me just get it over with. Let me just get rid of this, this pest that's bothering me. And Katir Barsham is one of those advisors, and he says, all the advisors are like, yeah, great idea, rubber stamp, rubber stamp. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And comes along Katir Barsham and says, no, this is a bad idea. He says, not only is it, why is it a bad idea? Because A, it won't be successful. Numerous people have tried and none of them succeeded. And B, how are you going to be described in the history books? You're going to be the first Roman Caesar that murdered his own people, his own citizens. You can't do it. So the Caesar says to him, you know what? Your argument is very compelling. It's very convincing. But you, after all, you one-upped me. And the rule is, when someone becomes a rebel, like launches this rebellion against the Caesar, they themselves are executed. So you, Katir Barsham, you save the Jewish people, but we're going to kill you. So they made a big procession, and they're leading him to his death. And someone in the stands started heckling Katir Barsham. And he tells him, you know, you, you did everything to save the Jewish people, but you're not Jewish yourself. And you're such a sucker. You didn't join the people that you saved. So what, what did you gain? You just sacrificed yourself for the foreign people. So the Talmud describes what happened next. This Ketir Barshalom individual, he grabbed a knife, he circumcised himself, and then he declared, I've now paid my dues to join the Jewish people. Just like the Jewish people are circumcised, I now am circumcised, I paid my dues, I'm part of the Jews. And right away he was executed. And the episode concludes with the following statement. After the story happened, a prophetic voice announced, Katia Bar Shalom is invited to Omaba. Because of this valorous act, this act of gallantry, this act of bravery, this act of martyrdom, he saved the Jewish people and he joined the Jewish people. Therefore, he is welcome to Omaba. And then when Rabbi Judah the prince, when he heard this story and this prophetic voice, he started crying. And he said, some people, they earn their world, they earn Omaba after many years. Whereas some, they get it in one hour. 
Again, this is the first time we see this idea in the Talmud, book of Avodah page 10b. It tells us that it's possible for someone to achieve all of Abba, this world, over the course of a lifetime. And it's also possible to achieve the exact same destiny in one hour. This Katir Bar Shalom, he was a non-Jewish advisor. He was a, he was a Roman. He wasn't necessarily a good candidate for Olam Abba. Yet with one hour, with his actions of one hour, he was able to achieve this tremendous goal. That's the first story to this effect. A second story to this effect is also found in the Talmud in the book of Avodah This time it's on page 17a. It tells of a different person. This person was Jewish, but he was not behaving exactly as the Torah outlines. In fact, the Talmud says that he was a connoisseur of harlots. And in fact, he was someone who prided himself that there was no woman of ill repute that he had not patronized. He he had patronized them all. And then he found out that there was one prostitute in the other end of the world who was very talented and was very expensive. And he says, Oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go visit her. And he travels, uh, says, the Talmud says that he went over seven rivers, a very long distance. It was 400 gold coins, very expensive. And uh, the Talmud describes what actually happened. But this, this harlot started reprimanding him. She said to him, you're such a lowlife. You're like an embarrassment. And you know you really hit rock bottom when the harlots start embarrassing you. So he decided he's going to repent. And he's going to change his ways. And it's a very long description of what he tried to do. He tried to find all kinds of other ways towards repentance without actually having to change himself. He tried to use all kinds of external ways to change himself or to change his circumstances, but not to change who he really was. And then he realized that he's the only one who could do it. And he truly repented. And he truly changed himself in a mournful way. And the Talmud says, but he had become so addicted to his way of life that when he changed, he suffered tremendous withdrawal symptoms and he died of the pain. And again, the story concludes, a prophetic voice boomed, this great sage, it calls him the great rabbi, which is uh, uh, obviously an elevated term, Rabbi Eliezer ben Durdai is invited to Olam Abba. Again, Rabbi the Prince hears this and he says, he starts crying. Some people have to work a whole lifetime to get invited to Olam Abba. Others get their invitation in one hour. And finally, a third episode. This is telling us of the events surrounding the Roman Emperor Hadrian and his assault on Judaism in the 130s. We talk about the Holocaust, the first Holocaust in Jewish Literature is always the events of uh, Hadrian's Holocaust of the 130s. And one of the things that he would do is he would assassinate rabbis in terrible, horrific ways. And it tells the story that he made this rule, anyone who teaches Torah is going to be assassinated. And one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Hanina ben Teradion, he rebuffed this edict and he was arrested and murdered in a very grisly fashion. 
the barbarians, they took a Torah scroll and they wrapped him with the Torah scroll. And then they lit a fire around him, close enough to cause him tremendous agony, but far enough that he wouldn't get engulfed in the flames and wouldn't die. Moreover, they placed like a compress on his heart to keep him alive as long as possible to prolong his agony. And meanwhile, everyone's invited to witness the spectacle, and he's talking to his students, he's talking to his daughter. His daughter is like, she's terribly distressed at what she's seeing, and he tells her, don't worry about it. If it was just me being burned, then it would be a problem. But after all, look what these barbarians are doing. They're burning me and a Torah scroll. God maybe will be forgiving of them hurting me, but he would never stand silent with the burning of the Torah scroll. And therefore, I know I will have my retribution. Students are there. They they can't believe what they're witnessing. He says to them, you know what I see? I see that the scroll is being burned, but the letters are flying up to heaven. Another common theme in, in, in Judaism. Meanwhile, the Roman executioner, they are overseeing it. You would imagine what he was like, a hardened criminal. Not exactly a firm adherent to the Geneva Convention. And he, while witnessing this, is moved to change his ways. And he asks the great rabbi, if I expedite your death, will you guarantee me a ticket to Omaba? And the rabbi says, yes, I will guarantee you a ticket. So immediately, he swiftly raised the flames. He pulled off the compress from his heart. He himself jumped into the fire. Both of them died. And again, the prophetic voice announced, Rabbi Hanina Ben and the executioner are both invited to Olam Abba. And again, Rabbi Judah the Prince, when he hears that, he starts crying and he says, some people have to work a whole lifetime to get their ticket. Whereas others, they get their ticket to Omaba in one hour. So these three stories, they demonstrate to us that there's two roadmaps to be given a ticket to Omaba. There's the typical, the slow, the steady grind, a lifetime of work. And then there is the expedited route, and that is the shortcut route, achieving your lifetime of work in one hour. Let's get back to our Mishnah. Our Mishnah tells us not to denigrate any person, not to be dismissive of any person, for there is no person who does not have his hour. We look at other people and we try to judge them. And you know what? We may be accurate in our assessment. We may look at someone and say, this person is an absolute lowlife. And you know what? They may be a total lowlife. They may be a Roman executioner, a heartless and cruel and brutal murderer. There may be someone who is a connoisseur of prostitutes, total degenerate. There may be someone who is part of the axis of evil of the enemies. They're uh, an advisor to a bloodthirsty Caesar. And we may say, you know what? This person really has no redeeming qualities. Yet even such a person, the Mishnah is advising us, they may have their hour. They may have their one opportunity to change it all on a dime, to live a life of sin, yet to punctuate that life with some great valorous act that could change their entire assessment. And yes, they did not choose the path of a lifetime of righteousness, but who knows, they have their hour of achieving righteousness in one fell swoop, and therefore 
they will indeed result as being someone who ends up in the same bucket as the righteous who at their grind year after year, day after day, month after month, decade after decade in their pursuit of righteousness. There is a story that is found in a biography of the great Rabbi Moshe Feinstein of blessed memory. He was the greatest halakhic authority of the 20th century. And the story goes that there was a person who had denigrated Rabbi Feinstein's ruling, was a vocal opponent of it, but also disrespected and disparaged the great rabbi. So it's okay. We believe in a, in, in a meritocracy. We believe in people arguing their case. But the greatest rabbi of his time to have some, some individual to think that they're really a true colleague, to think they're a truly an equal, and to denigrate them personally, those things are unheard of. Those things are unconscionable. But this person did it anyhow. And then this person comes to visit Rabbi Feinstein and asks for a favor. He asks for an approbation for his book. He wrote a new book. He wants an approbation from the great rabbi. And everyone was absolutely flummoxed by what they saw. They were totally, the onlookers were totally incredulous. How is it, how is it possible someone could be so brazen to embarrass the rabbi, never apologize, yet come and unabashedly ask for a favor. And even more striking, the rabbi did it. He wrote him a flowery letter for his new book. And the person never apologized, says thank you, and leaves without any remorse, any apology. And the onlookers, they asked the rabbi to explain, like, what's the meaning behind this? How, how do you justify this? This is totally inappropriate. This person is not deserving of your approbation. And the rabbi responded as follows. He said, the Talmud tells us that it's possible to achieve Omabah in one hour. Perhaps this is my hour. Of course, the great rabbi is someone who worked to achieve Omabah every day of their lives. But this statement, maybe it's revealing to us that every person, regardless of who they are, regardless of what kind of life they've lived, Every person is going to be afforded an opportunity to unlock their ticket to Allah in one hour. And therefore, our Mishnah advises us, every person, no matter who they are, no matter what kind of life they've lived, is going to be afforded an opportunity in one hour to achieve greatness, to change the entire verdict of their life, to become righteous in their very last dying moments. And therefore, there's no person who has no hour, and therefore, we should not denigrate any person. I think it's a very valuable lesson, both as someone who has to view other people, but also for ourselves, that we should be aware that every one of us is going to be afforded an opportunity to do something really great in our lives. And in one hour, we can really change everything. I want to point out another point. The Talmud tells us, that if someone embarrasses you and you don't respond, even though you're correct, even though you're justified, you swallow your shame, so to speak, you swallow your pride, you're going to get all butt in one hour. That's the equivalent of the very valorous act of martyrdom that's being described here in the Talmud. And I think we should be training ourselves to be on the lookout for these 
opportunities of achieving everything in an hour. And if we're on, we're on the prowl for that opportunity, when it comes to us, we're going to seize our hour and seize our moment and achieve something very great, compress a lifetime of work into one hour. I thank you all for listening. This was a total pleasure. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com and I look forward to speaking to you next time.